Hey, this is Kate. Welcome to Two Pastors Take a Walk and Make a Podcast. This is Yolando, and as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we <laughs> what we are preaching. That stays in. That stays in. <laughs> what is astonishing you? Oh, on Sunday, we had a birthday party for a beloved member of our church family. Uh, Miss Eva Edwards turned 92. She is a wonderful human being. I met her before I pastored Derrida Church and loved her even before I was her pastor. We met her because when we were part of that transformation cluster with, which is an apt term, but with 10 churches seeking transformation, a really brilliant part of the design, and I mean this sincerely, was it was um, a year-long process that was not just for pastors, but included um, for significant trainings for um, stakeholders in the congregations. And so we met, so Derrida Church, you weren't there, but it was a part of that group. And so we met significant leaders. I mean, everyone is significant, but we met key leaders from Derrida Church 10 years ago, and she was one of those key leaders. And we all fell in love with Miss Eva. She was, she's just solid gold. She is. Um, she's kind, gracious, um, and she has the kind of humility that makes her fun and pleasant to be around. I remember when I became the pastor of, of Derrida Church, and I addressed her once as Miss Edwards, and she said, honey, my name is Eva, and that's what I want you to call me. And she's one of those people that even though, you know, I have this position of authority called her pastor, she is my friend, and even though she is at a place of maturity that I, and I, I honor her as a, as a kind of mother, she is my friend, and we have this relationship that is... Um, I don't even know how to describe it. I'm her pastor. She's a mother. And there is great respect and joy in each other's presence. And I, my wife doesn't really like me visiting her in her home because she knows I have a sweet tooth. The last time I was in her home, let's see, she served me mint ice cream, mint chocolate cookies, uh, and some mint candy and something else and, and, and coffee. You know, you know what I think about Miss Eva, like, and I've said this a lot that when I was in seminary, uh, this great gift, my preaching professor, Anthony Campbell told us that if we kept our eyes open during our ministry, we would meet every single person in scripture in our congregations. Right. Wow. And it was just one of those things that um, really struck with me. And so it's like this little game that I play all the time of just like making those connections. Like it just mm-hmm. bubbles up at times. And when I think about Eva Edwards and I think of, you know, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Because what I, That's my great. read on her and just the times that I've been in, in conversations with her and in training with her um, and especially, you know, in church transformation, when when stakeholders in the community are really wrestling with control and like mm-hmm. how to how to let go and let God, and she was just 
a person who was so authentically, purely, wholeheartedly surrendered to the Lord, right? It was just so pure for her that like the only thing that matters is figuring out how to walk with Jesus as a congregation. And, and, and we know that people that the Lord desires, you know, to send us, um, to catch people up into life. And so it, it doesn't, doesn't matter what songs we sing. It doesn't matter, you know, what the style is, what matters is people coming to know the Lord and just the pure heartedness and the sincerity and authenticity of that. Like I just, and I don't, obviously like, I don't know her, like, you know, her, but you just come into her presence and she just has this, I mean, gosh, this sounds woo-woo, but she just has this aura of like. She is probably the most loving person I know. Mm-hmm. She it's really, is, she's beautiful. Yes. And she is known in our church family for writing letters to people, like handwritten letters. I received one of her letters before I became the pastor of Dorida as it was being announced that I was going to be the next pastor. And she wrote me a letter saying, how happy she was that I was going to be her pastor and how she had prayed for me to be her pastor. Wow. Even when I was at another church. <laughs> she prayed you right out of the she church. <laughs> sa- <laughs> she said, you came and you um, you filled in for our pastor one Sunday. Um, I th- no, I think they were in a period. Uh, they were without a pastor. And um, so I preached there one Sunday. And she said, I started praying that you would become our next pastor. Hmm. So she's known for these beautiful handwritten letters. She still lives alone. She's 92. Uh, She just recently stopped driving. So we had this time of of fellowship after worship. We're eating cake and ice cream, and we're just celebrating her 92 years. And I leaned over and I asked her if she would share some wisdom with everyone gathered. And immediately she said, you know, I don't have any words. I don't really have anything to say. And I said to her, I know that's not true. Right. So she waited for five, for about five minutes and um, she looked at me and she said, okay, I'm ready. She got her cane and stood up and she talked about her level of gratitude just for life and all that God has given her and enabled her to do and see. And then she said, that next to her salvation in Jesus Christ, the greatest gift was the people gathered in the room. Mm -hmm. And she said, you all are my friends and I am so grateful for you. And she just kind of went through the room naming people and the room was silent except for her voice, Mm -hmm. we were riveted. Mm -hmm. We were deeply moved into, I mean, what she said in a few minutes was much better than the sermon Mm -hmm. I had preached. But my takeaway from her beautiful expression of gratitude was how important, and not just important, the gift of being in relationships with people Mm -hmm. like in this season when we're trying to do more and be more Mm -hmm. and build more 
at the end of the day, it really is about the value and quality of our relationships. And even though we all look up to her, she expressed how we had added and how we continue to add value to her life. And we're, we're just stunned mm-hmm. um, because we, we just hold her in such high regard. And I left thinking, yes, this is how it ought to be for us <laughs> in the church, for those of us who follow Jesus Christ at the end of the day, it is about the relationships we have with one another. And if I could, if I could rewrite um, one of our catechisms, the one that everyone knows so well you, that says... You can rewrite I, one of I mean, our I catechisms. I mean, I can, but I don't know. I, I, it, I anoint you. I deputize you if, right now. If it would be officially accepted by the denomination. You know, there's that that place in Scripture where someone asks Jesus, uh, you know, what, what is the, the greatest law? And mm-hmm. he says, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And your neighbor as yourself, I would take that and rewrite that part of the catechism that says that the chief goal, purpose, end of humanity is to glorify God and to enjoy God forever. And then I would put and Mm -hmm. (laughs) to be in relationship, to truly love your neighbor as yourself. Um, Yeah. I mean, what I think is so interesting about that story is two things. One is I think it's such an important gift that really only exists in local congregations, which is just the cross-generational aspect of that friendship, because the culture tends to teach us that we really only need to be in relationship with people who are just like us. And, you know, they're, I mean, not, wisdom is not determined by age, and not everyone who has um, lots of years is wise, but, Correct. but when a saint like Eva, and I use that in the Pauline sense, like I'm not trying to say that she's, I, you know, I respect her too much to put her on a pedestal. Like I, you know, but when a, a, a saint has lived so many years in the Lord, there's just a level of healthy detachment. Like you, you've been through so much that you have the experience usually that that God is sufficient, that God is enough. Mm-hmm. And I think like just hearing you tell that story about Eva really looking around the room and naming every person in the room, like it's a it's a benediction, it's an anointing, and just how powerful it is when someone that you love and admire turns a loving gaze on you and says, not just in general, but with specificity, I see you and I love you and and I'm naming what is good and lovely in you. And I think part of the gift of that, I wonder just how much better we would be at that if we didn't look at every person and every situation through um, a filter of anxiety right? Mm, that's like if, good. And I, and I feel like that's one of the things that a person like Eva, both just by her, her particular gifting and faith and, and stature is that she, she knows that God is good. And so she is not anxious about whether or not what, what, what is happening at Derrida right now is going to quote work. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and she doesn't, appears to me from my chief seat, but you know, can just, she's not viewing people through, through this filter of anxiety of like, 
are they going to be able to do X or are they going to continue to do Y? But just to be able to say, whatever gifts you have, wherever you are on your growth curve, whatever your struggles are right now, whether or not you ever bear visible fruit or, you know, see visible healing, I can look upon you as the Lord looks upon you and just delight in your being. And I think, you know, especially, you know, we live obviously in an era of great anxiety for very good reasons and in churches in general and especially in mainline churches and especially in the COVID era, there's just this haze of anxiety over like, are we going to make it? Are we okay? Is, you know, uh, and I think, you know, what that does is just make us feel like, well, when things are okay, then we'll be able to love each other. And the reality is that's such a like lie. It's a lie. It's such a lie. If we can't love each other now, then we can't love each other ever. Mm. And the reality is if we can love each other now, then whatever is happening will not ultimately define the quality of our of our community, right? Like and so I think like even in talking about rewriting that that, you know, the chief end of mankind is to know God, glorify God and enjoy him forever. Um, you know, I think it is fair to say like what Eva is doing is seeing the body of Christ through the eyes of Christ. And so to see and love and behold your brothers and sisters to live together in kinship is to glorify and enjoy God, right? Like it is the same. It'd be helpful to yes. name that in the catechism yes. to be clear. But I mean, that is what that is, right? And I know that you know, because of who Jesus is and because of the grace that Jesus Christ has shown me, I can perceive and relate to others in a way that in my natural self, I just can't. Um, and I, and I just know this, I mean, we were talking before we started recording about like, I was telling you some stories and you were like, Oh, I would have liked to have known you in college. And I'm like, no, you really wouldn't have because I, um, in so many ways, I'm such a dif different person because I was just had so much to prove to myself and to the world. And there was so much striving that there was no, there was no peace in me, which then made it impossible for me to show up authentically and vulnerably in the world. Right. And so I think, um, you know, that's a great gift of someone like Eva Edwards is she just is sort of this embodied presence of like, Julian of Norwich, right? Like it is, it is well, it is well, it is well, all manner yeah. of things are, are well. And you can only know that if God has given you the grace to see it. And if you're surrendered to ultimately, I may not get what I want and that's okay. It's okay. Yeah. So anyway. Um, so what's yeah. astonishing you? Well, it's interesting because it, it, it's sort of um, related to what you were saying um, on the opposite term. So I was last week in Wisconsin um, with this group of friends, um, which is uh, started more than 20 years ago as a as a vocational holiness group. So when we were all in seminary or just out of seminary, and there was the sense that, you know, um, <laughs> clergy do bad things. Uh, do Yeah. And a what? lot of times, um, you know, you look at, and I think that the co-founders of this group were, were looking at some of the headlines of clergy implosions of the day and just sort of saying like, hey, we need to be um, humble uh, and 
when we look at these things and not just project out and say like, oh, those people are a different quality of people than us. Um, but to say like, there's something about this vocation and life that just appears to make people susceptible to making really harmful and destructive choices. And so the the two guys that co-founded this group said like, we, we want a place where we can really think not about the tasks of ministry, but like the vocation of ministry and the, like, who do you want to be as a person? Um, and, and how do you want to have a, a place where you really have a group of people where you come back to the main thing, which is, um, you know, personal relationship with Jesus and growing, growing everything else out of that. And I think, um, and so it's just interesting because this group has met together for, it would have been a 20 year while COVID shut down. And, um, and obviously like so much has changed, um, in the span of that time. And I think, you know, it was really good to be with people again. It was, um, like strange and awkward cause you don't just pick up right where you, um, left off. And I just, I just have deep, um, love and affection for the people who are in that group. And I think it's really interesting because when I started out in that group, you know, those weeks that we would spend away every month were just like mountaintop highlights of my year um, because I felt like um, in, in some senses, like that was the only place where I could go and just really be understood and be around people who kind of had the same vision and um, passion and were kind of going after those same things. And, um, you know, what I noticed in the last couple of years with that group, what I still really just treasure the gift of those friendships and the, the gift of this opportunity and find it really meaningful and valuable. But I also, and, and I'm so grateful um, that, the, the, that those are not the only deep friendships that I have in my life. And they're not the only deep vocational friendships that I have in my life. And, um, and in some ways, and this is all, I mean, this is, this is as it should be. Um, but you know, over all of these years, we might've started in the same place, but we're, we're, we're not all in the same place anymore. And that's just reasonable and okay. And there's different, you know, different things that you can learn and wrestle with, but like sort of being in this group and thinking about, you know, how you've changed and how you, you might've, um, seen things one way 15 years ago. And now, you know, now you don't, and, and that there's just not the same level of homogeny and, and that's all to the good. Um, but I, I mainly am just astonished. And I was thinking about this on a, on a plane ride home and just sort of picking up and reentering life. And I think one of my kids was in the car with me and I was sort of talking about this group and talking about some people that I was going to see this week, including you. And, and like one of my girls was like, and you have a lot of friends. And I was like, you know, I do. And that is just the, uh, the biggest blessing in my life. Like I am just filthy rich in friendships mm -hmm. and the level of joy and wholeness and health that comes from that is just, um, I, I just like my cup runs over on every level. And so to, you know, to have this group that, you know, functions in this way, which is so good and, and so perfect for what it is. And then to also have, you know, people that I get to, to do life with 
that's such a cheesy phrase, but like <laughs> on a, um, you know, on a daily and weekly level, like I'm so grateful. And I think, you know, the connection is, and I just really feel that healthy, vital, one of the fruits of healthy, vital relationship with Jesus is friendship, right? Is holy friendships with other people. And I don't think that gets talked about a lot. And I don't think that our culture can recognize it. I think that one of the things that we continue to believe is that Jesus will bless us with the American dream. So like success and safety and wealth and power, instead of recognizing that Jesus will bless us with the things that actually bless us. And so friendships and community um, are, are by, you know, central to the kingdom of God. And it would just be, you know, really interesting if one of the ways that we thought about church health mm-hmm. and church vitality would be to figure out how to measure you know, are people, do people, not just do people, is there a lack of toxic conflict, but also like, is there connection? And even if, you know, some of what you are, the way you're being like grown and stretched in your faith formation is leading you to be able to create and maintain healthy relationships outside of the body of Christ, like that would be great too. But I just think, you know, I'm just astonished at, you know, because growing up as a kid and as an adolescent, like friendships were not something I excelled at. Like that was not a thing that I, something I craved, but, but really didn't, you know, had the appearance of, but didn't really have. Mm. And so, um, it's just, I'm astonished and so grateful. Um, and, and it's interesting to me to think of like what I would have, I mean, 20 years ago, I would have talked about having a successful ministry. Now I would very deliberately talk about having a faithful ministry. But but one of the markers, as I would say, is, yeah, it is it is friendship. And I mean, like, I so deeply resonate with hearing you talk about Eva as primarily a friend, like that mm-hmm. kinship. And I also think there's like this trope, and this is a little inside baseball for non-pastors, but if people talk about like, Oh, the threshold of 200, like how do you transition from being a family sized church to a program sized church? And they talk about how it's 200 because beyond that, like the pastor can't maintain relationships at a certain level. And while I very much believe that a church, a healthy church should not be centered around the person and personality of the pastor. Like I, I very much believe that, but I do sort of wonder at, how we just sort of automatically accept that 200 is like wrong. Like Mm -hmm. we're doing something Mm -hmm. wrong if the church doesn't get to a bigger level. And this isn't to say, I, I don't have an opinion about what size churches should be, right? I think healthy churches exist at every level, but I think this idea that, um, that, they need to be a certain size sort of runs counter to the idea of what I'm beginning to really see as key in a flourishing kingdom-based community, which is it's a place where someone can come in and, and be seen like Miss Eva, right? Mm -hmm. And like, Mm -hmm. and, and be, you know, able to enter into some relationships that are personal, like to, you know, have some I thou relationships, Mm -hmm. um, so anyway, so I'm I'm just I'm really grateful, um, and and astonished at just the beauty and how much 
that makes a difference. And I will say one more thing and shut up. But like, again, it just makes me realize how much we reduce faith to, well, what do you think about God? Do you think A, B, C, and D? And have you done this ritual? Like, okay, you're a Christian. And and that's just such an individual thing. Like you can have, and I see that all yeah. over the place in this cultural moment is there are people for whom their relationship with God is, do I intellectually assent to these ideas then, and have I done this ritual? So then this is who I am. And I'm like, I, I don't really have an opinion. I don't know your heart. I, I'm not, but I'm just saying like, that is not, when I look at the gospel, <laughs> that is not what I see either in the pattern and practice of Jesus's life or in like all of the letters written by Paul, which ironically are sort of what people extrapolate out of to say, these are the six things you need to think. But the letters themselves are about how do we live together in community, right? How does what we know and understand about Jesus transform our ability our life together to live together in love with people who frankly are very different <laughs> very different and sometimes don't know what we know right mm-hmm. and so it's just so interesting that we've that that it's all about community and yet somehow we've been able to extract out of that like an individual way mm-hmm. to like take these ideas which really only mattered in the context of creating community and one of the ways i, I mean i feel like I'm this will blow some people's minds, but one of the ways I know is that Paul is not consistent in his theology across letters because with certain communities he emphasizes certain parts of the nature of Jesus and in other communities with different problems he emphasizes other parts of the nature of Jesus. And I mean, I'm happy to believe that Paul himself is evolving and growing and that doesn't threaten me. But I also think what Paul is saying is like, hey, you guys need to think about this, but you guys need to think about that because it's not about an intellectual ascent. It's about how do you be inspired by the revelation of Jesus to be, you know, the brothers and sisters living together in unity. And that's what pleases the Lord. And that's what's like the dew on Mount Hermon. And that's what is the oil on the head of Aaron running down the beard. It is, if you're not living together in unity with people who are different than you, then I don't know what that is. Yeah. I remember, um, as I listened to you, I'm thinking about my early Christian formation and both the church and I thought that discipleship was primarily about getting into a classroom and getting your face in a book. I'm not knocking classrooms. Yep. I'm not knocking books. I love both. Right. But what was not given to me early on in my formation is the necessity, beauty, and power of relationships and how relationships are a primary form, a, a primary place, a context of spiritual formation. And I think I only started to see that really, really started to see it once I became a pastor and started meeting with couples in the church, whether they were preparing to get married or they were experiencing some hardship in marriage. And I could start to see that their marriage, their relationship was a place in which God was shaping them. This, by mm-hmm. the Spirit, they were being shaped. 
and it was my joy <laughs> in those times when I could actually do this to help them see, oh, the person you're married to is not your problem. (laughs) The problem that you're facing is the problem. Mm -hmm. What God is doing, what the Spirit is doing, is shaping you as you deal with this problem, Mm -hmm. whatever it is. And, um, yeah, when it comes to my own pastoring, I have noticed a shift in how I relate to people in the church. Um, at one time, especially early on, it was almost exclusively about energy out, mm-hmm. what I can do for you as your pastor. And I was very much opposed to receiving. Mm-hmm. And I had one, I was in a church once uh, that had a, oh, I can't remember what the, what the group was called. Uh, but it had a name, and the purpose of this group was to evaluate from time to time uh, to take the temperature of the relationship between the pastor and the congregation. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. once <laughs> their report said, we don't think you like us. And I was floored. Mm-hmm. And I said to them, do you not see how hard I'm working for you? Do you not see all of these things I'm doing? And they said, yeah, we, we, we totally see it. Mm-hmm. But we, we, we want to do this, this, and this with you and for you. And the light went off. I was like, mm-hmm. oh, <laughs> together. Right. We- well, I mean, it's just so interesting. Like I was doing the daily lectionary today, and there's a passage from Hebrews, Hebrews 13, 17. I mean, it's just... just Freaky, but they were saying like leaders watch over the souls of the people with joy, not groaning for um, that would be of no advantage to the people. I mean, and I do think, and we've talked about this a lot, Mm -hmm. this idea that like, if you do not like and love the people you're pastoring, if you are, if you are tending to their souls with groaning, even if you're not, again, like even if you're not externalizing it, even if you're disciplined enough not to not to talk about it or even to kvetch in a room. I'm like, I'm very Yiddish today. <laughs> but, but I mean, just to say, like, you cannot, you cannot expect people to be vulnerable before the Lord if they don't feel safe yes. and loved. Yes. And, and people will say, like, well, some stuff, people, it's not okay. All the more reason that people need to feel safe and loved because it's only then that you can bear to confront, oh, I actually am, um, am harming. My sin is actually harming people. And, and if you don't, if your belonging and your worth are at stake, you're going to, you're going to protect yourself. And so I think, I mean, that's just such an interesting thing. And this transforms how we see conflict. So, I mean, we're all a little bit like sandpaper. Sometimes we rub each other the wrong way, but in it all, God is smoothing out all of our rough edges, making us better people, growing us. And it is, it's all good. Conflict is not something to be avoided. It is to be leaned into because in Mm -hmm. the midst of conflict, God is advancing God's own agenda of Uh, maturing God's well, people. And I think like for me, one of the ways I've changed over the years as a pastor is like when there are people in the congregation who are in conflict, 
initially and in my immaturity, I wanted to fill the space between those people. Like I wanted to go back and forth between them and to, you know, try to build understanding and to try to, I mean, frankly, manipulate them to relate to one another in different ways and to encourage them to just not speak truth that I, you know, and, and as I am growing in maturity, that's what I'm seeing is the, the, the problem is not a problem. It really is an opportunity to grow in grace and to be transformed, but not if we artificially resolve it or bury it or ignore it. And so to sort of say, like, I believe that Christ is in the space between these two people. And my job, my my gift as a pastor is to just sort of proclaim and hold steady that there's there can be something very real help going on here. And, and, and even so that's okay. And we can, we are safe in Jesus safe enough that we can tell the truth that we can hurt without harming one another. Right. And, and trust that, that God is not only in sunshine and puppies. Right. And that sometimes healing and wholeness and growth is really initially very painful, but that doesn't mean that it's not of the Lord. And, and, and again, and that's where it comes back to like what's in your heart, because if someone is in great pain and you're glad, then the Lord is not in that. But if, but I mean, we were talking about this earlier today. Like if you love someone enough to risk the relationship, to tell them the truth, and you love the Lord enough to believe that even if this person leaves angry and bitter, I still believe it's better for them to be on a catalyst to abundant life with you than for me to selfishly just say, I want them in this community yeah. because of my ego or my personal, dis- even if it's not ego, even mm-hmm. if it's just, I really like you and I want, like, you have to love them more than how they make you feel as a pastor. I've been reading this book about um, healing trauma. Um, I think it's it's called Try Softer. And mm-hmm. one of the things that's said is that in order for a person to begin to heal trauma and to um, get hold of their own trauma responses in um, a situation of anxiety is to feel safe. Mm -hmm. Like you have to feel safe in order to deal with the situation or else you're just going to be triggered and do what you always do Mm -hmm. in terms of, of a response to anxiety. And I think that's just so crucial when it comes to building multi-ethnic communities. If people don't have a sense that I'm safe, I'm loved, safe, and loved enough to be vulnerable with the trauma I've experienced or, or <laughs> the fear of, of triggering someone else's trauma. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. You can't have a genuine community if folks don't feel safe. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think like the church just is such, and we just have such a gift that, you know, few other places in the world have in that we do have healthy and holy common ground in Jesus that we can build on. And, you know, that's hard, you know, not, 
whatever, not colonized Jesus, but real Jesus. Um, so anyway, we should move on because you're you're going to talk about Joe Rogan, and I am here for it. Listen, <laughs> this is what I'm thinking about, I, I, and I I don't want to think about this. Yeah. Like I, when I first heard this story, <laughs> I'm like, no, I'm I'm just not letting this have space in my mind. Um, so to summarize, um, a couple weeks ago, the artist, music artist Neil Young, well, um, yeah, Neil Young first, yes, yeah. um, said that he wanted his music pulled off of Spotify in response to what he deemed as um, misinformation. By well, Joe Rogan, and Joe Rogan is a podcaster. He's a uh, popular uh, podcast. And it was misinformation. Yes. Like not deemed misinformation. It was. Yes, I'm. I'm. Yes, I'm, you're being generous. I'm, I'm working but... at being generous and fair. Um, Rogan's response was: Listen, on my podcast, we have alternative points of view. Um, all opinions are welcome here, which is fine. It's fine. It's fine. I am not the target demographic. I know, but here's the thing about free speech. You have free speech, but others are free to respond to your free yeah. speech, and that is not cancel culture. That is response, that is free speech responding to free speech. So there's this conversation going on about his podcast in COVID. In the midst of that, um, Another music artist, India Ari, a black woman, said, um, I, I, th I think in an Instagram post, that she agreed with folks who were having some issues with Joe Rogan and his podcast around COVID. And she said, I, I think there, there's a conversation there. He is giving out mis mis misinformation. However, yeah. even more... I want to respond to racism on his podcast. And she put together a compilation of Joe Rogan using the N-word uh, um, over the years. And I mean, with the hard ER, I mean, it mm -hmm. was, I listened to the compilation and I was shocked. I was like, oh, this man has, he gives zero care about using mm -hmm. that word. Um, and so India Ari, like Neil Young, has said, pull my music off mm -hmm. of Spotify, this streaming service, and which is, you know, for the, let me applaud them because that's just not talk. That costs them money. Yep. And I think for those artists, um, maybe a quarter, a third of their income so th that's a big deal. They're and Johnny Mitchell did it too. Yes. And so in India RE, I, I think she uh, hashtagged, what if we all leave? Right. Like, so, right. you know, at first Spotify wasn't, you know, saying much, but if you get, you know, Beyonce, Drake, um, yep. a, a Taylor Swift, I mean, just you, you name four or five people, if yep. they leave, oh, okay, now we, we have a problem. Um, but there has been um, growing conversation about Rogan and his use of the N-word. He has um, 
issued an apology and said, you know, no white person should use that word. He said, I haven't used it in a long time. So it was taken out of context. That, he should have just left that. He's like, oh, they, these were just compiled and were taken out of context. Really, what is the right context? Um, right. Because it wasn't just once or twice. Right. Well, and he said that he's like, I, these were taken out of context, but I know there's not a right context. I'm like, buddy, I don't know. I, I'll tell you what I think about this whole thing when you are well when you said everything here, here's here's part of my takeaway it is a reminder well first of all let me say spotify pays joe rogan a hundred million dollars yep. for his yep. podcast no <laughs> let that sing a hundred million dollars for and his podcast per year i i don't know I whatever assume. it doesn't even matter it's yes. a lot of money well on the flip side, these music artists are I getting know. like pennies on the dollar. Right. Right? Right. So, right. So basically, they're taking money, Spotify, that they make from these artists and giving it to him. Yep. Right? So this is a reminder that racism and white supremacy – that the engine that drives them is not, oh, we see black skin and we hate black people, so let's keep black people down. It is economic. Yeah. I want to make more money. And if I have to marginalize, marginalize, disenfranchise, or ignore you, so be it. Yeah. I mean, I just think several things one is it, it is i think just worth really naming mm. that to the extent that joe rogan has been canceled which is zero percent he has not been canceled he still has all his money and yes. all of his platforms so he, and he will not be canceled correct but <laughs> right but to the extent that there's any backlash against him it started with covid not with racism right correct. and it's just important to say that um and I appreciate India Ari sort of saying, like, look, I already had a problem with Joe Rogan and anyone who considers themselves to be not racist, anti-racist, or, you know, you should already have a problem with him. Because it would be very different if out of the clear blue nowhere, say, like, in response to you know, protests over George Floyd, it would be different had Joe Rogan at that point said, you know what, I've been reevaluating my life and I would like to say, I, I really harmed people who matter mm -hmm. to me. And some people are going to be, you know, very disappointed and disgusted in me. And I just, I own that, but I just want to let people know that it matters to me, right? Because if you apologize for something before you, quote, have to, then I think that has the real capacity to heal, right? Because people know Absolutely. I'm doing this because I care that I harmed you, not I'm doing this because I care that I'm being harmed by it, right? Like not because it just finally caught back up to me. And I just think we have to wrestle with the fact that white people and Neil Young and Joni Mitchell and I think Brene Brown, all, they all pulled their stuff off of Spotify, which is great. And just to sit with how come when it was about COVID, which potentially 
harmed COVID misinformation potentially harms white people. And then we say like, well, this is speech that we really need to stand up against. But when it is using racial slurs, you know, just a lot of white people might not approve, but not willing to cut themselves out of that level of money. And I, I don't say that to, I mean, I just say that to acknowledge reality and, and to say like, I mean, Certainly, I think white people might think about it, not might not think about it that way, but people of color certainly do. Absolutely. And that was what India Ari was saying was like, look, I, I've already I mean, I think Kev on stage said the same thing. Like, here's why I'm not canceling Joe Rogan, because I never I never subscribed like this guy was never my guy. He's all in it. And I just also really have a problem with Joe Rogan being like, oh, well, that's who I was then before I knew better. I'm like, buddy, like. The, the, you didn't do, record these things in 1960 and even in 1960 it wouldn't have been okay but like you what happened was you felt like oh this is what the cool kids are saying and i can say it because i'm one of the cool kids i mean it just because at you first didn't it care. was the double down right you and so there's that whole problem just period and then secondly when Joe Rogan responded initially to the COVID misinformation, what he said, which to me is just really disingenuous, is he said, I acknowledge that I haven't always done right. And I'm going to do better at getting mainline experts on my podcast. And I want to be like, dude, here's the thing. You have always done exactly what you set out to do, which is make money. And so I just along with everything else, don't patronize me. N call, having mainline experts on your podcast does not get you clicks in the way that having someone um, sell, hawking in vector men or whatever does. And you knew that because you're many things, but stupid isn't one of them. Right. So you just don't get to have it both ways. You don't just get to come to the front and be like, well, I'm a really powerful strategic person, but I didn't know what I was doing. And I'm so sorry. Like, please don't give me some. I mean, no, sir, you built this media empire and it did not happen spontaneously or by accident. You knew what you were doing when you used those racial slurs. You knew what you were doing when you centered those voices that encouraged people not to mask and not to be vaccinated and to try alternative. I mean, you knew what you were doing. You were very strategically manipulating the culture wars for your own profit. And you know what? As everyone would point out, it is a free country, but own those choices. Yeah. And those are choices that you make. And you don't get to go back now and be like, oh, shucks, I didn't realize what I was doing. Sir, stop. You made every right choice to accomplish what you were in it to accomplish. So, you know, own it. You could. And so that that's my frustration is just tell the truth. And and, and I think, yes, we should learn to say that when someone uses a racial slur and perpetuate continues to use it and when they get, get someone does the emotional labor of saying like hey can you please not use that racial slur and their response is oh i didn't mean it that way stop being so sensitive then you just need to like believe them like he's showing you who he is believe him and then if we had stopped listening to him when he used racial slurs and not given him this huge platform then it would have been a lot less dangerous to the whole world when he started inviting people on who told people to swallow bleach about COVID, right? Yeah. Like, I think 
the, I mean, it is just sort of a case study of the ways that white people being able to ignore racial animus eventually comes back to hurt white people, right? So like, I would like us to care about our brothers and sisters and our neighbors just on their own sake, but to recognize like when you unleash this kind of othering spirit, like some people just aren't people in the way that I'm a person and you unleash that, it might start with people who are different than you, but eventually it, they'll come for you, right? Yeah. We've read the poem. Yeah. So um, Joe, also just like, dude, he started out getting people to eat bugs on reality television. Like, can we not just like believe him? <laughs> like when he says what he's doing, anyway, whatever. Bless him. God bless him. And I pray that God's will will be fully realized in his life as I pray that the will of God will be fully realized in my life. And I hope we see the power of leaving. Like mm -hmm. I really yes. am yes. struck by India Ari's hashtag. What if we all leave? Yeah. And you, you don't have to burn the building down. You just walk you away. You don't have to smack anyone in the face, smack anyone in the face as you leave. But what if you just left? Yeah. Think about the power of like all the black artists saying we're out. Mm -hmm. Think about the power of black athletes in the NFL saying we're, we're out. out. Yeah. N not only at the professional level, but at the college level. Yep. Think about some of these evangelical mega churches that like the look of having people of color in the room, but who preach a gospel that has no impact on racism. As a matter of fact, is is complicit. Is complicit, yes. Yeah. What if those folks said after after engaging, of course, right. we're not not just leave, but engage. And if there's no response, just just, just go. Leave. And I think you know the reality is, it it that is not just a message for black people; it's a message for white people, right? Absolutely. And I think you know, we, and we've talked about this before, and I certainly, you know, so like what if, what if back in the day, when you had so many black women saying to the makeup industry, hey, nude is more than something between white and pink, right? right. What if white women had said, yeah, if you don't change that, we're, we're leaving right. too. Well, and I mean, that goes back to that. Um, why am I blanking on his name? Uh, Cornell, Cornell, Cornell West. West. Was did I tell this on the podcast last week? I don't Cornel think so. West was invited to Wheaton College, and there was this moment where he's just teaching, and and um, I read this anecdote somewhere, and I can't remember the context of which I read it, but you know, he's teaching about racism and the colonization of the gospel and America, and like a Wheaton College is an I think is actually a really great evangelical Christian college. Um, and and one of the white students stood up and just with just deep sincerity and pain said like Dr. West I don't know what to do about my white privilege and he said leverage it next I mean so just this idea of exactly what you're saying is like you're not responsible for the world being the way it is yeah 
and you have a certain level of power that everyone should have, but you do. And so the point isn't to like cry about it or moan about it or feel guilty about it. Leverage it, leverage it. And I think, you know, there are so many people of goodwill who feel so tied to institutions that do not share their values Mm -hmm. and like you and and so there are people of color who are trying to get be validated by institutions that don't share their values and there are white people who are validated by those institutions and keep trying to make those institutions shift and realizing like this institution does not want to shift and does not need to shift. What it needs is for you to be here, ironically, saying the things that you're saying so that they can say, oh, we actually are engaging with these issues when really we're not. And I think to be able to say, at least in the body of Christ, like we we are not bound to any institution. We have no institutional loyalty that supersedes our loyalty to Jesus. And Jesus did not promise us a platform. Jesus did not promise us a 401k or a pension. I mean, none of that. And so I think to really wrestle with the idea, I mean, and I'm a white person speaking to white people, like at some point, like even if you're challenging an institution, even if you are within the context of that institution, speaking against the values of that institution, by being there, you're still propping it up. And that's You know, I have friends who are Methodist pastors who have had to make really hard choices um, in recent weeks, um, months. Uh, um, my friends, um, Alan and Sarah Ewing Merrill, who pastored a church like really similar to to our congregations, like a multi-ethnic uh, church plant within the Methodist church, and the Methodist church is still wrestling with human sexuality and there's it's a global issue and you know they have been their community is open and affirming and their community has always been just loving and welcoming and centering people regardless of what their sexual identity is but they also just there came a point where they realized for as long as we have this methodist symbol on our door even if we're saying this is not what we believe in as long as we have that we are propping this place up and our conscience demands that if we are who we say we are and we believe what we say we believe, we have to leave. And, and we don't need to blow the place up. But what we do have to do, and this is the cost, is they had to raise tens of thousands of dollars to be able to leave with their community, to be able to leave with their building. They're building that their own people like mm-hmm. paid for. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I I hate that. And I think that we can get stuck in these institutions because we think, well, it's not fair that we would have to pay. You know what's not fair? The gospel. <laughs> I mean, just to say, like, w- our witness is in not just in what we're willing to gain in Christ, but also what we're willing to lose in Christ. And I don't. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it's just. It's a thing. It's a thing. It's a thing. Yeah. And if you leave. Yeah, there is a cost. Yes, and there's a blessing to be able to say, yes. I can't see how God can be good to me outside of this institution, which is maybe one of the reasons I need to leave this institution. Mm. So so did you say what you're thinking about? Nope. Do you no. want to hear what yes. I'm thinking about? What are you thinking about? I mean, I feel like everyone has heard a lot of what I'm thinking about. But um, So my friend Sarah Imholse sent me an article, and it's <laughs> very related, um, that you know there's this... Canadian protest convoy of of truckers who are protesting the vaccine Vaccine. mandate. Um, And I think, 
you know, I, I, I both feel that it is really important that people have bodily autonomy to make medical decisions for themselves. Um, and I deeply and wholeheartedly believe that the vaccine is safe and effective and, um, that it is holy and pleasing to God to, um, take the vaccine to protect yourself and to protect your neighbors. But I also believe that I am not the expert in somebody else's body. And so just, I hold those things in tension. Um, and I think, uh, you know, industries and communities have the right to, um, impose vaccine mandates and then people have the right to respond. <laughs> like I'm no longer going to be a part of this or I am going to be a part of this. And that just, I think is as it should be. Um, I definitely think that churches, bodies of Christ, it is not our job, no matter how much we would believe and support people being vaccinated, we would never make that a requirement to be part of our communities because, because it's just not. And, you know, if there's, if there's anything that's a definition of adiaphron where there's freedom of conscience, it, it would be this. Um, however, you know, if you are an employer, you get to tell your employee what they need to do in order to, to be safe. And, you know, and, and one of those can be a vaccine mandate and then people can choose to stay or seek employment elsewhere. Like that's just how the free market works. And, but there are truckers in Canada who there is a vaccine mandate primarily because Canada's biggest trading partner is the United States. And right now the border is closed for people who aren't vaccinated. So the trucking industry is like, look, it, do, it just doesn't even matter. Like in order to do business, this is what we have to do because we can't not you know, we can't not trade with our biggest trading partners. It just is what it is. And I think they have exceptions for people who need medical exceptions. So, um, but there's a huge convoy of truckers, 18 wheelers that has descended upon Ottawa, Canada, which is the capital city of Canada, which I'm really proud of myself for knowing. Yeah. And, um, and apparently like, it's just a mess there. Like it's really dangerous. Like these 18 wheelers are like entrenched in the streets and they, no one can get them out and it's getting really violent and scary. Um, and it really has grown beyond people protesting yes. um, a vaccine mandate, which is appropriate and and just sort of morphed into something really bigger than that um, in, in sort of demonizing folks on the other side. And um, anyway, my, my friend Sarah Imholz sent me an article um, because um, GoFundMe has said that you you they won't raise money for this, but there are Christian crowdfunding sites that are crowdfunding support for this, um, trucker envoy. And they've just raised millions and millions of dollars. And my friend, you know, sent it to me and was like, I just like, how, what does this have to do with Jesus? Right? Like why, why are we on a Christian site saying that that this protest is something that all Christians should be a part of like just just a magnification of just how much the culture war has hijacked the body of Christ and I just like the contrast between that and um, a local woman who who I've begun to um, learn from um, who does um, just racial justice active activism work um, particularly relating to how people experience the criminal justice system differently if they're white or black, not out there somewhere, but like here mm -hmm. in Mecklenburg County and the ways that she is leading people both to do um, court support. So like, how do you just 
show up and bear witness, both because it change it literally changes the outcome that people have in the system, and also because like when people are vulnerable, the body of Christ is supposed to show up to offer love and support regardless. Regardless. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Jesus was involved with the criminal justice system, right? And that should just be enough for any of us to know. Like, no matter if you are innocent or guilty, that moment where you are utterly powerless is a moment where people need to know the love of Jesus in an embodied way. And that love should not be reserved only for people who are innocent. And also, when we know for sure that injustice happens every day in our criminal justice system, the people of God should be deeply compelled to showing up in an embodied and loving way to make sure that justice is done for particularly poor people. Um, and it, it's just really interesting because, and, and and the organization she works for also just tries to fundraise a lot of support for families of people who are in the criminal justice system. So like you're waiting in jail and you can't get out. And so now your family is going to lose their apartment or become homeless or whatever. And just to say, you know, how do we support people who are so vulnerable? And it's just interesting to me to see how the church is so hesitant to be involved in showing up to support people in that place of vulnerability, prisoners, those who are seeking justice, you know, children and parents who are facing homelessness. And we're just like, I just don't know. And we can't get that kind of support for that. But when you put support the convoy, then you get hundreds of millions of dollars. And it was interesting with my friends, I was kind of processing meeting this woman and how I've been really just compelled by the biblical um, truth. I mean, without being conscious of it, like when I hear her talk about justice, I just hear echoes of the prophets. I hear Jeremiah, I hear Amos. I'm like, I have studied this in a book and I'm hearing this woman say the same things Mm. that are in scripture. And it was funny because I was talking to my friends about how, you know, just knowing her and engaging with her and how she um, identifies as an atheist. And my friend Bill is listening to all this and like, I'm sorry, but who's the atheist? And like, are you telling me that this woman who is crying out for justice on behalf of the poor and the oppressed, like she's an atheist, but the people who are showing up for worship and I'd self-identifying as Christian and ignoring these calls, like they're the believers. Like, and I just think it's such a good point is to say, and, and I mean, this is where like scripture is such a double-edged sword. Like it comforts us, but it also judges us to say, look, God is saying, Jesus is saying like, this is what I'm about in this world. And so you can say that you love me all you want to, but if you are not about proclaiming the release of the captive and the year of the Lord's favor and, you know, justice for those who are oppressed and sight to the blind, like if you are not actively about engaging with the places where that's happening, then it's great that you go to church and you sing worship songs, but you don't believe in the agenda of the kingdom of God. Now, I'm not saying you don't love God, and I'm also not saying God doesn't love you, and I'm not saying your experiences with God aren't authentic. What I'm saying is he has shown you, O mortal, what is good. To do justice and to love kindness 
and to walk humbly. And you might be loving kindness. I don't know. You also might be loving niceness. Um, and you might even be walking humbly, but like justice is not a like nice to have for God. Um, and to the extent that we say like, well, injustice is terrible, but not my problem. Like that is not, that is not something that a Christian can say in good conscience if we're taking scripture seriously. So do I believe that any of us need to save the world? Absolutely not. But I think we often excuse ourselves from being engaged in the small deeply unsettling and uncomfortable ways that we can mm -hmm. because we think like, oh, well, the Lord doesn't require this of me. No, that's not true. But we have a church full of, and I'm talking capital C church, full of atheists, right? Of people who say, I know that these words are in scripture and I can even read them once a year, but I don't believe that God really cares about this anymore. And I don't believe that God really cares if I care about it anymore. And then we have people completely outside of the church who are outside crying out ceaselessly day and night for justice and who have righteous anger that it's not being engaged. And we're like, Oh, I don't know about that person. Like I, you know, this is why, <laughs> This is why Jesus says, you know, blessed are you when you were persecuted for righteousness sake, because this is what happened to the, your ancestors, the prophets. Like, this is why everybody hated the prophets, because they showed up in the middle of a settled, comfortable, apparently flourishing religious community and said, actually, God is really not pleased with the way that you have just repeated all of the broken habits and oppression in the world. And you have just like repeated them here in this community and put Yahweh's name on top of it. And you think that that makes it okay. And you think that because you live near the temple, that God's never going to exact judgment in this community. And you're wrong 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 and you're wrong. Mm -hmm. And then the people go off into exile and the prophets have to show up again and say, Hey, look, it's not that God ever stopped loving you. God never stopped loving you, but you were asking God to stop being God. And that's not going to happen. So, I just, I'm, but I really like Bill's question about like, I mean, obviously I'm not saying that I know this woman's experience of her faith more than she does. I'm not claiming that, but I'm just saying for, as a, as a pastor wrestling with scripture, it's just interesting to say in that scenario, who's the atheist? Is it the woman who doesn't believe in God, but is out trying to raise money to keep people housed while their parents are in jail? Or is it the Christians who are giving money so that the Canadian truckers can like riot in the city of Ottawa? Who's the atheist? Yeah. Jesus said you can't serve both God and money. And mm -hmm. when it comes to those truckers, here's my place of compassion for them. I know that it's a hard life mm -hmm. and I know it's a life that doesn't pay a lot of money. And what I see in the protest is that you have wealthy, mostly now with these uh, funding sources, Christian white people telling mostly poor, poorer white people, you are a victim of people of color, and those who support them. And I think that these truckers and poor, poorer 
white people like them are being used and manipulated by those who have money. And one reason why you don't have the same Christian sources funding people in the justice system is because there's no, there's no economic incentive. There's no power incentive for them to do so with these truckers. It is leverage in the culture war. It is to win over a vast majority of the average white citizen so that uh, those who are wealthy and white can maintain their power, their wealth, squeezing those who are poor and white and squeezing even more people of color. Right. I mean, and I think I just want to be clear because I know that this is a scary conversation to hear. And I know that we have all been sort of primed that um, th that socialism and communism are around the corner and that the talk about danger is is really, um, I'm sorry, the talk about justice is really dangerous, right? And I think like what what is hard is many of us who are white Christians just do not see the depths of disparity and injustice that our black and brown neighbors live with every day. We just don't see it because we're not in relationship. And so we think that things are basically okay because for us they are basically okay and we don't know that for others they're not and and um now and for those people for whom things are not okay they are being told the reason right you're not okay <laughs> the reason you are in pain is because well we're just we're we're giving too much to these black and brown people and um right socialism and all that stuff yeah well and i just think i mean the reality is there's no one involved in any of this who is a garbage person correct and there is no one involved in any of this who is not a human created in the divine image of god and correct. who is not incalculably worthwhile and who i i believe will be ultimately reconciled to christ and to one another so i i want to be clear but our our fight is not against flesh and blood Correct. it's against powers and principalities and the power and principality of white supremacy of racism of enmity and you know and a feeling like i can't face the enormity of the brokenness of the world because if mm -hmm. i do um and and if justice comes i'm going to get left out or i'm going to be punished i mean that is just a lie straight from hell right that we just don't believe we sincerely believe that only some people can flourish and so we just have this basic animal um, need to make sure that we're one of those people and yes. our children are one of those people and you know part of it is just like removing that that film of anxiety through which we see everything and just go well what if god really is good and mm -hmm. what if god's promises are true and what if seeking justice for my neighbor isn't a loss for me, right? Like, And I would add to that, what if the powers and principalities that Scripture talks about, not simply demons that cause people to look insane, act insane, but what if those powers and principalities are also crystallized into systems 
economic, political, and this is what we're talking about. Like you have to leave institutions that are not supporting. So it's not like you were saying. It's not that people are trash. Correct. Right. It's the systems. There are demonically empowered systems that must be named and confronted. Mm-hmm. And I, I just think that um, one of the things that we also need to realize, even in as much as we name those systems, is to say, I don't, I don't believe that, you know, the Savior has already come. Mm. So I don't believe that some great leader is going to rise up and like fix all of this for us and we just need to follow them. And like, I mean, the reality is we all have areas in our lives where we do have influence and we do have the ability to take a step, just to take one step towards what you think might be a more embodied way of living in lines with the values of Jesus and to take that step knowing that it will be uncomfortable and that that discomfort won't kill you. And then, you know, just see what happens. Like just a sense of holy curiosity. Like, is this concept of shalom, of mutual flourishing, is it true that when I take a step closer to the margins that I am actually discovering my own flourishing and wholeness too? Like the things that I'm clinging to so tightly are actually and deeply ironically also killing me and that. So it it is just a place of deep mutuality and not about any one group giving up anything or saving anybody. It's about saying like, no, we are moving together towards this vision of life together that was laid out, frankly, in the book of Deuteronomy, right? Mm -hmm. Like just this idea that we live in a community where there's no economic advantage to the suffering of my neighbor. Can you lend your neighbor money? For sure. Can you charge interest? No way. Why? Because it shouldn't be, you know, you should want to help your neighbor because you want to help your neighbor and you should not profit off of your neighbor's desperation. And we have a whole life that is built off of profiting off of one another's desperation. And that is a, is a huge. Yeah. I'm reminded of, you know, the words of, of um, Joshua when he says, choose this day whom you will serve. serve. So what we have in scripture and, and Jesus and John the Baptist preached the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. Mm-hmm. So you, you must choose. Will it be, the kingdom of God in which there is justice and equity, kindness, love, generosity, or the kingdoms of this world where there is a, a scarcity mentality, there is a hierarchy, violence. you believe we in believe violence, in pain. We believe you in... must choose, and that choice matters. Mm-hmm. So you're going to be in conflict with either the kingdom of God or the kingdoms of this yeah, world. There, that's 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 right. It. That, I mean, that's a hundred percent it. And and honestly, like I would say, you you're going to be in conflict with both your whole life, right? Because let's not just believe that there's going to be a place on this side of eternity where <laughs> I'm true. not going to also resist yes. the kingdom of God. Because yes. I will. I yes. do. Because the world is in me. And right. Yeah, and so yeah, and yeah, that's, that's okay. That's like good. the grace of Jesus that's is good. sufficient for me. But I mean, I think the problem is when we are not when we are not trying to be in conflict with the world and when we 
uh, delude ourselves into thinking that the way I live my life is the kingdom of God way. And it's just not true. And But ironically, like knowing that we are failing and falling short is the truth that sets us free. But we have to believe not in our own righteousness, but that the righteousness of Jesus is sufficient for us. One of the great dangers of the people of God from the days of the Bible until today is to think that the sin you are engaged in is approved of by God. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Manifest destiny. It is okay to drive these natives off their land, right? Because God... God wants us. God, right. Right. And that, I mean... That is, it is so easy to create in your mind a Jesus who will say yes to everything your flesh wants to do. And that's what Bonhoeffer is talking about when he's talking about cheap grace, right? Is you want to say, like, I'm going to make certain compromises to get ahead in this world, and that's all okay because Jesus forgives me, right? Instead of to say, like, no, I need to resist the forces of death and destruction in this world, and what I need is the grace to resist it, Mm -hmm. not grace that forgives me when I don't resist. And I'm not saying that Jesus' grace doesn't forgive us when we when we align ourselves in the wrong side because I because I think it does but I think that's not what grace exists for Mm -hmm. and I mean I just was thinking a lot like I was reading again like Hauerwas's commentary on Matthew where he's citing John Yoder's work about Constantinianism and just saying like look after before the emperor Constantine became a Christian in the Roman Empire, it was very difficult to be a Christian. Correct. Like it was really hard to be a Christian. You were risking your life. It required so much of you. But once Constantine became a Christian, and then the empire instantly became a Christian empire, then after that point, it was hard not to be a Christian. Just because whoever you were and whatever you did, if you were part of this empire, and this empire claimed to be Christian, then then you were a Christian and it didn't matter Mm -hmm. sort of, there was no sense of like, well, I'm adhering to this moral code, no matter how much it costs you. Like after the empire became nominally Christian, then it was almost impossible not to define yourself as a Christian. And, and I think to sort of say like, again, without demonizing Constantine or even like, I don't know what was going on. I think that our hearts, we can have a personal relationship with Jesus without understanding that the world that we live in is not okay in the eyes of Christ that not that not that God has given up on creation or is throwing it away like garbage but that you know our ways are not God's ways and what we want to have happen is for Jesus to come in and like be a mascot on our on our institutions which proudly proclaim that they're institutions of limited abundance rather we're going to make sure that the people who deserve it flourish and everybody else what's good for them to suffer so that they'll change and that's just not that's not the values of the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is a place of mutual flourishing where people get not what they deserve, but what they need Mm. to come alive. And a lot of people just don't believe in that, which is why they exit stage left where there's wailing and gnashing of teeth because they would rather be miserable when everybody gets what they think they deserve than be in a community where people actually flourish. And that's, I think we, we just have to have God 
strangely warm our hearts so that we say, what I really want is for my neighbor to flourish. And I mean, my neighbor, period, not just my neighbor who I think deserves to flourish. Like I, So it, this is just reminding me that I think um, both on this podcast and in our preaching, you and I probably need to talk more about eschatology, talk more yeah. about end times, because I just get the sense that what you and I are talking about is really driven by our view of the end, mm-hmm. that it's not God you know, throwing creation into the trash can of history, but God really is at work to redeem, renew, restore the creation. And therefore, our mentality is not, let's just get all we can here on earth because we know that God will fix it all when he's asked us to heaven. We'll all be, well, one, there'll be no racism in heaven, but for now, hey, I'm, if, 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 my family, my people win, then And there's it's no okay. hate in my heart. And That's so it right. doesn't matter yes. what, yeah. So, but I, I think you and I are are trying to express an alternative vision, but that, that's really driven by our sense of what God is doing in Jesus for and to creation in the end, that, that this whole thing is going somewhere. And, that and the therefore, story is good. And that it is good. Yeah. It is good. Because I think one of the reasons that we sort of fail and we have a lack of theological imagination is that we get to a point, you know, once we maybe pass our mid-20s and we were like, oh, actually, if me and my group get in charge, we're not going to be able to create a better system, right? So we just are like, oh, turns out I can't save the world for God after all. So all I want to do is make this the best version of the dumpster fire that's going on now. Right. And the difference is like, I think that what we're saying is like, no, no, God is doing this. Like this is happening. This good ending to the story is happening, whether we resist it or participate in it or not. And the fact that I know that I nor any person aligned with me or any person I align with cannot create a system where there's mutual flourishing. Like the fact that Castro couldn't create a system mm. in Cuba that a club, that doesn't mean that God cannot create a system of mutual flourishing. And I think again, like who's the atheist? Like I'm saying, like I get that it's naive. I get it a hundred percent. I get that it's foolish. I get it a hundred percent. I get that a more sophisticated natural view of the world would be to just have a more strategic way of deciding a more just way of deciding who gets help and who doesn't and who gets to flourish and who doesn't and whose life has value and whose doesn't. Right? Like I get that in the natural, that's just the best that people can do. I'm just saying like, I don't believe in the limits of what it's possible for humans to do. I don't believe in the Tower of Babel. I believe in being scattered outside of our competency into a place where we have to rely on God to bring about the redemption of creation, not on our own strategy to build a tower to the heavens or a rocket to Mars to start over or whatever kind of human hubris we're coming up with at this point. Like, I don't want to align with that. Because the redemption of creation is not self-evident. It's not. Which is why Jesus teaches us in his parables that the kingdom is like a mustard seed. Like <laughs> it just yeast. seems small and insignificant. And, useless and, and weak. at the same time, it's happening. I, I like the way you put that. It's happening. It is going to happen. This thing is going to expand. It's going to take over. It the, the yeast is going to have its effect. And we, by 
the sheer grace of God have some insight into it and are trying to announce it to others because it yeah. is for every, we want people to see this thing that is happening. Right. And, and I, it's good. It and is I, good. I know we have to go, but I mean, like, it definitely just reminds me of like, there's just a lot of conversation right now about mental health and, and like, we need more mental health resources. And I a hundred percent agree, but I just was watching, uh, where's the meme? Where's like, I know it's so stupid to learn something from a meme, but I do. But they were saying like, you know what else is mental health? Like affordable housing. You know what else is mental health treatment? Like food security. Do you know what else is mental health security? Like job security. And I mean, like to say like, we are like, oh gosh, how can we help people with mental health? Well, maybe if they're not slowly drowning every day, like part of what we're seeing in the lack of mental health is just the fact that we live in a sick and toxic culture where it's really hard to wake up every day and feel safe. Right. And that's not even about like, oh, Joe Rogan uses the N word. That's about saying, like, how am I going to feed my kids tonight? Like, how am I going to get to work to do my job when my car is about to break down? But if I pay to fix my car, then I can't pay my rent. And then I'm out on the streets like just the level of constant stress and Mm. anguish that Mm. people just don't understand that other people are living with all the time. And not just some few people, like a lot of people. And when we see a story of someone who manages to overcome that kind of grinding anguish of poverty, we celebrate them as like, see, the American dream worked. And there's a just an article that Tara Westover, who wrote Educated, published in the New York Times the other day. I think it was in the Times. And she was just writing about the fact that like, look, people come up to me when I sign my book and are like, oh my gosh, you're so inspirational. And she's like, that is just not what I want people to get from my story. And she's writing about like, before she got a Pell Grant, when she went to college, she's like, let me just tell you what my school experience was like. Like every single day, what I was thinking about was, did I have 25 cents to buy ramen noodles? Like I was falling asleep in class because I did work study on the janitor shift because it paid an extra $2, the overnight shift, then the daytime shift. Like I never read, a, I didn't read my books for class. You know why? Because I didn't have enough money to buy them, right? Like, so I was like overcoming, I was in this school space, but because I was being ground down by poverty, like all I was doing every day was just figuring out how to survive that day. And then somehow she got like a tooth infection and so she couldn't ignore it. So she had to go to the dentist and the dentist was like, you need this whatever root canal and it costs $4,000. And so she went to her advisor to drop out of school because she's like, all I know to do is I got to go back home. I got to work at the In-N-Out Burger. I got to save up enough money and then I'll come back to school. And the advisor was like, or I could get you a Pell Grant and then you get $4,000 a semester And that will just help you. And she said, like, I got this check and I just couldn't even believe how, like, the number of zeros. I'd never seen that much in my life. And it meant that what I got to do was get a root canal. I got to work during the day instead of at night. I got to buy the books for my class. And then I was in college and I was able to flourish, right? And it wasn't Mm. that I overcame poverty because I was so amazing. It's because there was a give an investment Mm -hmm. in me that allowed me to show up in the world consumed with something other than the disaster that was 24 hours away ready you know and I just don't think that we recognize that because we're so proud of the American story of like perseverance and overcoming and anybody who really is worth anything is going to be over to over 
able to overcome this and anybody who can't overcome it like sucks to be them but it doesn't matter yeah and i think like just this idea of like no everybody is a terror westover like mm. everyone is someone whose flourishing matters to the whole community and they don't have to write a best-selling book it's just to say like who you are in the world in agony is terrible for you and terrible for all the rest of us because we are one another's keepers. We are kin. And, but if we don't believe that there's a way for us to flourish together, then, you know, that's what King was talking about, like the mutual inescapable garment of destiny. Yes. Like we're going to perish as fools, except we're not because I read the book of Revelation. <laughs> anyway, we... <laughs> We've got to stop talking. <laughs> I love it that you say that every week. I mean, We've got to stop talking. We've got to stop talking, um, which is fine because I don't know what I'm preaching about on Sunday. Anyway, so um, thank you all so much for listening to us. If you still are, we're... Bless you. <laughs> um, if you want to find out more about what God is doing at Derrida Presbyterian Church, you should first go to their website, which Yolando has been rebuilding because... It's almost ready to go up. Pastor Life. Um, it's D-E-R-I-T-A-P-R-E-S dot org. And you can find um, the Derrida Church podcast on the Podbean website and listen to Yolanda's old messages, which are just fantastic. And you can join them for worship on Sundays at 1030 in the sanctuary with an ask or on their YouTube channel um, and, and really find out what is happening there. And if you want to find out more about what God is doing at The Grove, um, you can go to our website, which is thegrovecharlotte.org. You can join us for worship on Sundays at 10 in the sanctuary with a mask or on the live stream without a mask. Um, and you can check out our um, podcast, the church podcast, <laughs> old messages on uh, The Grove Church podcast, which you can find on iTunes or, you know, wherever you get your podcasts. And we have a YouTube channel that we are now paying attention to. So you can find um, messages and um, videos and content there as well. So um, thank you for listening. And we'll talk and 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 talk to you next week. Bye.